Do you know what a golden calf is? Have you ever heard of that spoken before? It's a reference to the idol that the children of Israel had, Aaron Meek, while Moses was up on the mountain with God. An idol that they had made in an image they found pleasing to replace the God that they found hard to understand and follow. An idol that was destroyed by Moses because he wouldn't be reasonable or accommodating. He knew that anything less than complete obedience and allegiance to God was idolatry and was robbing God of the glory due his name. We too can have golden calves in our lives. There was a golden calf that Jesus was destroying in our account today. It was the religious system and programs that have replaced him as the center of their activity. And he destroyed that golden calf. And if we are to have any part in him, we have to now prepare to have him destroy any golden calves that we may have in our lives. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crown muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent the officers to arrest him. The things that the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering are found in verses 25 and 26. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? These are the opening lines of this little vignette that is found at the center of the account of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 7 opens this new account, and right from the beginning we are told that Jesus stayed in Galilee and would not go up to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 1. This was the intent and heart of the religious leaders who would one day in fact, kill this man. But that would not deter Jesus from doing that which he was sent to do, as he tells us in verse 38 of chapter 6. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. So, in the middle of the feast, Jesus shows up at the temple and begins teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, which sends the religious leaders and experts in theology into a tizzy fit causing them to demand that Jesus produce his credentials for teaching in the temple. Verse 15. It was then that Jesus challenged the reason why the religious leaders were desiring to kill him. Because he had healed the lame man on the Sabbath and made himself equal with God. Chapter 5, verse 18. His argument was, if it was permitted by law to circumcise a male child on the Sabbath, to obey the law, then why would healing the entire body of a man who had been circumcised and who had been lame for more than 30 years, why would that be breaking the law? His point was that while they did in fact have the law, they didn't understand the meaning behind it because they did not know the God of the law. And his argument was sound, which is why the authorities did not act when he made it. And this is what caused the people who were standing there, the crowd that was gathered in the temple for the religious services and spectacles, that crowd that was made up of people from all over the country, the crowd that would have been impressed with all the robes and vestiges of those religious leaders, 
as they went about performing their ceremonies and making loud appeals to the God that Jesus said they didn't even know, that crowd to speculate as to why they did not act and wonder if, in fact, this could be the Messiah. It was then, after the chief priests and religious leaders heard the comments of the crowd, the people that they feared more than they feared God, after they heard this, rap, this mass of rabble questioning their authority and knowledge, that they decided that they had better act. So they sent some of the temple officers to arrest Jesus. Verses 33 through 34. And then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me, and you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. We are intended to understand that the officers that were sent to arrest Jesus had heard this last statement. <coughs> In fact, there's only one more statement that Jesus will make before these temple officers return to the ones that sent them, empty-handed. We are supposed to wonder at what it was in this one statement that stayed the hands of the men who had committed their lives to following the orders of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. Why didn't they act? What was it that Jesus had said that caused them to stop and wonder? We are told later why they didn't arrest him. Verse 46, because no one ever spoke like this man. So what was it about this one statement that caused such wonder? What was it that was so earth-shattering that it would cause these men, who, by all accounts, had heard some of the best preaching out there, who had been witness to the majesty and the spectacle of the temple on, a, on an ongoing, continual basis, to stop and be amazed at one single statement? Did you catch what it was? The crowd didn't. The crowd that had gathered there focused it on the fact that Jesus said that he was leaving and they could not come to where he was going. Verses 35 and 36. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And what does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. They thought he was going to flee, that he was going to run away, and go to the Jews who were still living in other countries, those having been exiled by God because of their idolatry by the hand of foreign rulers. But these weren't real questions, as much as they were mocking statements. Here this man stood, preaching without credentials, in the temple, during the Feast of Tabernacles, breaking up the flow and rhythm of the religious events that were regularly scheduled. And now, after being challenged by the religious leaders, and even though he seemed to have won at least some of them over, he tells us that he's going to pack up his toys and go home, to go somewhere else that we can't go. Well, of course he would go to the Jews as a dispersion. They're not as learned as we are. They don't have the temple, the religious leaders that we have. They will probably fall for this guy's teachings. And in fact, this guy is so unorthodox, so outside of the way and will of God that he will even teach Gentiles. We all have to admit that the statements made by Jesus in verses 33 and 34 are a bit cryptic. They are definitely not straightforward and really do leave a lot of wiggle room for confusion and questions. Let's look at those verses again. 
Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. This is the fourth verbal exchange within this account between Jesus and the religious leaders. But this one is different from the last three. In the last three, it had been the religious leaders who had began the exchange, who had asked a question or thrown down a challenge. This time, it's Jesus that begins the exchange. This time, Jesus answers the political and religious authorities with a political statement of his own. His statement doesn't focus on his origin, but on his mission. He tells them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going. He's telling the religious leaders and the temple authorities that he is not bound under their authority, but that they are, in fact, under his. They don't control his actions. He controls theirs. The statement that Jesus made seems cryptic, like he's speaking past them or using words with wrong meaning. The reason that they missed what he was saying was that they thought that he was telling them of a time and a destination. But these were not the intent behind the statement. The reason they missed the intended meaning is because these people did not recognize, did not know the God that was standing in front of them or the God that had sent the one standing in front of them. He is using language that we, the reader, are familiar with. It's the language of heaven, the language of the not yet in the already. He is defining the issue that is separating them from him. It's a separation that could not be more clear. A separation that is meant to be clearly seen. One that he makes by using I and you. We, like them, can be confused by his statement. Why could they not find him? Even he is saying that they're seeking him. Doesn't the Bible clearly say that we can find God when we seek him? Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me will diligently find me. Matthew 7, 7, Ask and you will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And even Acts 17, 24 through 27, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and of earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. This is where the heart behind the seeking matters. Because these Jews were seeking Jesus, and they had strong feelings and even a strong drive toward him. But they were seeking to arrest him, to kill him, to be rid of him. And this kind of seeking will never find Jesus. The statements made by Jesus are about the unique identity and mission of Jesus, contrasted with the men and women who were standing all around him. 
those ones that were judging him, testing him, trying to determine if he fit their criteria to be the Messiah. His statements are about the judgment that has already been handed down by the one that they claim to know. And this all goes back to the initial question that I posed. What was it in this statement that brought the temple police up short? What was it that stayed their hand that caused them to sit up and take notice? It was the person that Jesus said that he was returning to. He said in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. Containing this one statement is the one thing that separated Jesus from all men. He alone was the sent one from God. No one else claimed this to be true, and no one else could back up such a claim, even if they had ever made it. This once again goes back to the stated reason in chapter 5 as to why the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Not just because he healed on the Sabbath, but because he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal to him. The temple police had to be just as confused by this statement as the rest of the people were. But just like the rest of the people standing there, these statements, while confusing, were still hauntingly ominous and powerful, <clears throat> which is why the temple police didn't arrest him. This then sets up verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the great feast, of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verses 37 and 38 happen on another day, a day after the temple police were sent to arrest Jesus, a day after the day that he was teaching in the temple and told all there that they could not go where he was going. A day after he had told them that he was going back to his father. In fact, it was probably more than one day since the first and last days of the feast were holy days that no work could be undertaken. To understand the meaning behind the statement that Jesus just made, we have to understand the context in which it was made. In Leviticus 23, Yahweh tells Moses in verses 33 through 36, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booze to Yahweh. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to Yahweh. It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no ordinary work. Now a question may have popped up in your head. If this is a seven-day holiday, then why in verse 36 does it talk about celebrating on the eighth day? Because the eighth day was actually a separate holiday known in Hebrew as Hoshana Rabbah, or in English as the Great Hosanna. The Feast of Tabernacles was the last of the annual feast, when all the Jewish men were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And each evening, the temple priest would lead his own parade out of the temple. He would exit the temple through the water gate, holding a golden pitcher, 
and he would walk several hundred yards to the pole of Siloam and fill that pitcher with water. With musicians in tow, the priest would gather the water, and they would all march back up to the temple, and the priest would take the water from the pitcher and pour it on the altar where the animals were sacrificed. And as he would do this, he would say, Please, Lord, save us. Hear our prayers. And prayers would be recited, as would the Psalms. The message the people would hear would speak of how God's Shekinah glory, that cloud of fire, first made itself known to the Israelites in the wilderness during the, the Exodus, and how the temple, the temple of Solomon, was dedicated during the Feast of Tabernacles. And on that day, that same Shekinah glory filled that temple. And as he poured the water in the temple area, Three 75-foot-tall menorah candlesticks were lit by young boys climbing ladders with torches. The pouring out of the water on the altar where the animals were sacrificed was meant to represent the promise of the pouring out of the Spirit of God on His people when He would once again fill the temple. Haggai 2.7 And I will shake all nations so that the treasuries of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The Pool of Siloam was important to the Jews of this time period. It was from these waters that King Solomon was anointed in 1 Kings 45. It was water from these pools that, the, that were used in the red heifer ceremony described in Numbers 19. It was to these waters that Jesus directed the blind man to go and wash his eyes, John 9, 6 and 7. And these pools not only held historical significance, but in Jewish tradition, it also had a prophetic connotation. First, because scriptures speak of a time when like water poured upon that, poured him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh, Isaiah 44.3. And because the waters of Siloam were used to anoint the kings of the house of David, and that anointing was symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon an individual, 1 Samuel 16.13, the living waters of Siloam became associated with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And based on Isaiah 12.3, the pool of Siloam became known as the well of salvation and was associated with the Messianic age. To the Jewish people of the Second Temple days, pouring water on the altar at the Feast of Tabernacles was symbolic of the Holy Spirit being poured out during the days of the Messiah. And it was in this context, at this time, that Jesus stood in the midst of this crowd that were watching water being poured out symbolically. It's then that he stands in the midst of them and proclaims, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John then adds his commentary concerning this statement, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Within John's commentary are two very important details concerning the Christian faith. The first is that outside of Christ, no one can have or will have any part of the Spirit. This is not to say that the Spirit was non-existent or inactive prior to Christ being glorified. 
But the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And it was not until after his glorification that the Spirit was poured out, like the water being poured on the altar on this evening. Only then he was poured out as Christ said that he would be in verse 38, in the hearts of those that believe. And the Spirit isn't glory-seeking. He's not desiring to have his own time in the sun like the Pentecostals like to portray him. He desires to do that which he loves to do, to magnify the sun, to enact a preordained plan of salvation in the lives of the elect sons of God through the regeneration of their hearts, and then continue to magnify the sun through the illumination of the word of God in their hearts. And the second thing that John highlights is the centrality of the cross of Christ in the amazing plan of salvation. Here, he clearly takes us and Jesus to that cross and tells us that it is through the suffering of the cross, through the suffering of his death, burial, and resurrection that he is glorified. Ironically, many of those that sat there as the source of this living water stood among them and made this proclamation of reality. Many of them would be part of the group that would move Jesus closer to the very cross that would bring about his glorification. But that was for another day. Verses 40 through 43. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. On this day, John highlights the division that was happening within the hearts of those in that crowd. And there's three different groups found within this crowd. The first thought that Jesus was the prophet. This was the title that a similar crowd tried hanging on John the Baptist in chapter 1 of verse 21. And this was also the title that many of them gave to Jesus when he fed the 5,000 in chapter 6 verse 14. The prophet was different than the Messiah, or Christ, which the second group proclaimed Jesus to be. But as we heard and learned earlier, their idea of who the Messiah was and what he was sent to do was completely different than reality. Because Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, but he would not be their Christ, their Messiah. A Christ that was sent to give them their best life now, that was sent to do their bidding. It may seem petty that it would make such a distinction. I mean, after all, isn't it good enough that just that they believe? No. As we can readily testify to, belief in a different Jesus other than the Jesus of the Bible is of no value. The Jesus that the Mormons believe in, that the JWs believe in, that the Muslims believe in, and even that many within mainstream evangelicalism believe in, cannot and will not save. And then there was the third group. The third group that just wanted to arrest him. Verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, and, but no one laid hands on him. Before we move on, I want you to realize to recognize that Jesus knew 
that he would cause division. And he was comfortable with this truth. We must be as well, because this is what truth does. Even among those that claim to know the truth, claim to be followers of the same Christ. It seems that we have bought a false bill of goods in our day that says that we should do all that we can to not upset the unity between those that claim to follow the same Christ, even if they preach a teach and teach things that are not scriptural. This is why when we read the account of like that between John Calvin and Michael Servetus, that we get confused. We think that since Servetus was a reformer, and he was a highly educated man who had done great things, he'd done great things to move the Reformation forward, that John Calvin and the rest of the church were wrong in standing up against him and calling him a heretic, and ultimately burning all of his heresy, and even himself. After all, he claimed to be a Christian. He had theological degrees. What was the big deal if he taught that Jesus wasn't equal with the Father? He still said that Jesus was God, that salvation was through him, brought about by faith alone, by grace alone. Calvin and the Reformers and even the Roman Catholics all understood that by stealing divinity from Jesus, you create a false God that can't save. The men of the Reformation era followed their master and would not, could not, take the hand of friendship with one who would play fast and loose with God and his word. They were fearlessly loyal to their God and to his word. We have lost that loyalty and are now much more at ease with being loyal to comfort and things that make things nicer for us and our family. And then in verses 45 through 49, we are told that even though there was a desire to lay hands on Jesus, it didn't happen. The officers then came to chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The doctors of theology are more than a bit perturbed by the fact that their enforcers had not done their job. We need to understand how big a deal this is. In our day and age, not following through, not doing what you say, and not obeying really have no consequences. In fact, it's so out of the norm that if you do keep your word, if you do obey, if you do work as if unto the Lord, you're marked as exceptional. This wasn't so in their day. In their day, if a soldier was sent out to do a job, he had better do it or he died. If a soldier was charged with guarding a prisoner and they escaped, that guard would then take the place of the man that he let go. Which is why in the account found in Acts, when the prison doors were opened by the Holy Spirit, the jailer was going to kill himself. And then in Acts chapter 12, 
There's that account of Peter being arrested and then set free by the Holy Spirit. That account ends with verses 18 and 19. Now when day, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. It was no little thing that these temple police did not arrest Jesus, that they returned empty-handed. Which is why the question by the officials, why did you not bring him, is made in such wonder and amazement. These men were used to getting their way and having their will done. They weren't used to failure on the part of those that, that were sent by them. And the answer given by the police only enraged them. The size of the crowds wasn't the reason that they didn't bring him back. That he had slipped through their grasp as he fled to the dispersion was not why they failed to bring him. He remained in Jerusalem, within their grasp, and yet they did not bring him for one stated reason only, the word that he spoke. The response by the chief priest gives us enough evidence to know exactly what they thought about Jesus. They asked these men if they too had been deceived by this deceiver. And we also see what these leaders thought of the people. The shepherds of this flock thought that those that they were supposed to teach, to love, to dis uh, disciple, they say that they don't even know the law. Well, whose job was it to teach them the law? And because they don't know the law, that they're cursed. And then... And verses 50 through 52 were thrown a curveball. 50 through 52. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The Nicodemus here is the same as the Nicodemus that we were introduced to in chapter 3. The same one that was asked by Jesus if he were not the teacher in Israel. The same one that was challenged by Jesus with the exclusivity of Christ as a means of salvation and that salvation is of God alone. And that section of scripture never tells us how the conversation ended between Nicodemus or even how he was affected by it. But here, 18 months later, this Nicodemus, the, the teacher in Israel, one of the leading men within the Sanhedrin, possibly one of the three richest men in that city, stands up. The same Nicodemus, who was a descendant of a great military, Jewish military general, who had been born into wealth and status, but who had not squandered these things, but had made good of them. This Nicodemus did the unthinkable. He made waves. He went against the popular. He told the mainstream evangelicals that Jesus did not die for everyone. He did the honest, obedient, and manly thing and stood up, even if he had to stand alone. And each of us, when we read this one single statement, made by Nicodemus, were encouraged by it. Our hearts were made full by this one simple statement made by this man. We were caused to wonder at it. 
our minds were led to ponder the truth that within the early church were men who were of the Sanhedrin and who were Pharisees, all because this man had the guts to stand up for truth. And on the surface, the statement made by Nicodemus can, seem, can be seen as not being primarily concerned about the man Jesus, but more about the rule of law. And this would not only have been fitting and even the right thing to do, it would have been the expected thing by the legal eagles of that day. But having said that, the statement that Nicodemus makes primarily was concerned about, was not primarily concerned about the letter of law. It was about the meaning behind the law. By finishing his statement concerning their law, and that they should not judge until they have examined the man that stood condemned, he finishes it up by saying that not only should we listen to what Jesus is saying, but also look at what he is doing and learn from him. This point is not lost on the men who were his contemporaries. And this also ties back into the point that I was making earlier about Jesus causing division. These men quickly turn on Nicodemus and lay a challenge at his feet that is more than just subtle when they ask him if he too is from Galilee. This is a very similar to you standing on the word of God and challenging a man who is preaching false hope and untruth only to be asked, are you too a Calvinist? And these men, just like many today who promote wrong teaching, try to use scripture to shame Nicodemus. But like those today that desire to ignore the truth of the doctrines of grace, they somehow gloss over a very clear fact. There had, in fact, been a prophet that had come out of Galilee. Jonah. The same prophet that Jesus would use as a sign of his coming death, burial, and resurrection in Matthew 12, 38-41, stating that as Jonah had been in the belly of the fish for three days, he would be in the earth for three days and nights. And this Jesus, this man, had ruined the climatic finish of the last great celebration and feast of the year. He had, in standing up at that climatic finish of the celebration and proclaiming the truth that only he is the provision of living water, he had ruined all their hard efforts at making this year's VBS, this year's revival, this year's Christmas pageant the best ever. But to the faithful, to those within whom the Spirit was already at work, the thing that Jesus proclaimed brought life, brought hope, but it also brought trouble. Saints, understand that if you are given the ability to hear the cry of Jesus, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If this statement makes your heart leap with expectation and joy, then rejoice. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But also, understand that you, like Nicodemus, have been permanently removed from the old temple, the old feast, the old religion, and moved to the reality of the real temple, the real feast, and the real religion. Christ has caused division 
and you must prepare yourself. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10 and listen to the words of Christ given to us there. Matthew 10, verse 24 through 39. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Did you hear the clear command by the one that you said, just that you just said made your heart leap with joy because he has given you living water? He commanded that you speak truth and that you stand for truth and that you're unwavering in your devotion to truth. He doesn't say that we should, could, or even possibly go along with partial truth because it's fun, entertaining, or because all of our friends are there. He commands that we stand for the truth, knowing full well that it is not just a bit unpopular, but that it will cause division and even death. But then he continues in telling us why. Once again, we can and should stand for the truth. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more valued than many sparrows. So everyone that acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here again, Christ, the Lord of your salvation, the master of your very being, the one that created you, that has purchased you with his own body and blood. This Christ warns us that cowards are not welcome in his kingdom. And he recognizes that this is our natural tendency, why, which, which is why he tells us to fear not. But cowardice, rationalization, compromise, and being reasonable to go along just to get along will not cut it. He goes on. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Yeah, but Jesus really didn't mean that he brought a sword. He's just using hyperbole. He really doesn't command me to stand against false worship of him. He's probably talking about me standing against those that deny him, like an atheist or a Muslim, and I don't know any of them, so I'm good. But he goes on. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Can you see how far we have fallen in what we call devotion to Christ? How many are willing to stay and have our hearts grieved by false teaching because of family or friends? How many parents are willing to allow their children to participate in things that are not grounded in the Word of God because they want their kids to have fun? Is this challenging to you? Don't think that it's me that is challenging you with my idea of what the Word says. This is the clear and precise teaching of the Word of God. And if you are not willing to make little Susie or little Johnny mad at you, unwilling to part ways with that place that teaches easy believism, because you know that they're all based around friends and fun and not the Word of God, if you're not willing to be the heavy, then hear the words of God. Allow them to ring in your ears and to the depths of your soul. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We all want to believe that cross-carrying is something that happens when those outside of evangelicalism comes for us. Like what's happening in California when they command the church to stop meeting. Or in the Middle East when they come and round you up and slit your throats. It is that. But it is here and now as well. You know the truth, which is why you are here. Now pick up your cross and stand for the truth. In which instance did Jesus ever mince his words, ever compromise to make life easier, better, or more convenient? When did Jesus ever, for the sake of making his mother, brothers, or family happy, ever compromise on the truth of God's word? This is what it means to follow him. You cannot go on a separate, differing, easier path and follow him. Which is the final point that Jesus makes. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Finding your life is speaking about life here, now, in this realm. If this is what is your driver, making life better here, now, if this is your main goal, then rest assured you will lose it. Which of us has ever known anyone to live more than 110 years? And yet at the same time, which of us does not look at the rich, those that have the material possessions of this world and the time and health to enjoy them and not say that they are living the good life and even secretly wish and desire that we were living it as well. The reality is that while there are pleasurable things in this life, which is just an acknowledgement that God really is good and loving to us, this reality is not real reality. Our life, true life, is not here in this realm. It's not hanging with friends. It's not an endless summer. It's not a permanent vacation. Real life is found in Christ. 
Our natural sinful self doesn't understand that life, does not know what it is or even have any idea of how, of how really good it is, which is why we must pick up our cross and follow Christ if we are to ever to find out just how good it is. This is the reality that Jesus lived. This is the reality that his disciples lived and that we must live too. When we look around us at this world, at these possessions, at our relationships and place value on them, then the call by Christ to come and die doesn't seem to be very appealing. But dear ones, when we see Jesus as who he is, when we taste and see that he is good, when we experience the love of God, then, and only then, the world begins to fade away. And here, what we have waiting for us. Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on that throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But please, hear me on this as well. Do not neglect such a great salvation as this. Don't be so casual about this clarion call to action that you think that you can wait, that you can postpone coming. Do not think that you can casually slip in under the radar, that you don't have to make your stand crystal clear. Listen, hear, and be warned by the same Savior that just said that to all that thirst he will give um, from the spring of the water of life without payment, and that he will be their God and they will be his son. Verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In that statement, there is no separation between murderers and cowards. No distinction made between those that practice witchcraft and the faithless. And there is no division, no amount of pain, sorrow, anxiety here on this earth that can compare with one nanosecond of that portion poured out on them. 
If you hear the call by Christ, the call to come home, to drink of him, then run to him. Do not walk, do not pass go, and do not collect $200. Rejoice! The one who stood up in the midst of that religious procession and loudly proclaimed that he is the source of living water, the one that was hidden in plain sight for the majority of those there on that day, he is the one that is calling you. And he's calling you to himself. And he's not only willing to give you all of him, you will find that he is the fulfillment of all your dreams and desires. Run home. And saints, know that all that is here, all of this that we call reality, will be replaced with true reality. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Rejoice in that. Let's pray.